God is in your storms? Do you believe that God is in your struggles? Do you believe that God is in those things? Is he really everywhere? What about when you're a teenager and your mom takes you out to dinner to let you know that she and your dad are splitting up? Is God there? What about when every single day you have to wake up and go to a job you hate to face a boss that's really just a jerk? You ask God to interfere, to intercede. You ask God to intervene and, and to bring you something better, but he doesn't. And he seems as though he's silent. Is God there? What about when it's like your family gets one bad diagnosis after another bad diagnosis after another bad diagnosis and you sit there, the doctor comes in only to tell you, you have cancer. Is God there? Is God in that moment? Because it seems awfully quiet, doesn't it? Because it seems, pac- it seems painfully silent. God seems noticeably to be absent. Is God there? This is what Esther teaches us. This is what Esther is speaking to us about. The book of Esther is not about heroic women. The book of Esther is not about wicked kings. The book of Esther is about the providence of God in the very ordinary circumstances of life. This morning's sermon will be different. It will be a different kind of sermon. We're kind of in the beginning stages of the next six weeks, and this morning we're really laying the groundwork, and next week Aaron's going to preach, and he's going to kind of continue to bring, to lay the the groundwork, because we're kind of setting the stage for what God's going to do throughout the book of Esther. But it's a different kind of sermon, and, and the book of Esther, to be frank with you, is a different kind of book. There's been lots of debate throughout church history about the nature of Esther, and about the point of Esther, and about the purpose of Esther. There have even been some, like the great church reformer Martin Luther, who said it should be taken from the canons, that it's a wicked book, a secular book. And I would very much disagree with him, as would all of the majority of church history. But it's a different kind of book. Now, if you're the kind of person that likes things just black and white, you you like somebody to say, this is what it is, believe this, do that, you're probably going to be anxious for us to get to the other side. Because Esther doesn't teach that way. Esther teaches in story. Esther teaches in narrative. Esther, for all of us who prefer someone to to tell us a parable, for someone to teach us through a narrative, to, to tell us the story of how you got to where you are so that I might learn from it, for those people, this book is going to speak to you. This book is going to challenge you. Though it's a story, it's entirely real, it's entirely historical, but it's beautifully written. And and even the most secular people would consider it to be a literature masterpiece, a literary masterpiece. So we're going to talk some about things that we're going to see throughout the book of Esther and the way that God is teaching us through story and teaching us through nuance and teaching us through context. So with that said, would you stand with me as we read the book of Esther. The book of Esther is in the Old Testament. It is right before you get to the wisdom literature. Um, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. You will find it there. Now we're going to read all of chapter 1 and we're going to read large chunks each time that we do this. But again, we remember this is God breathed. 
Christ is at the center of this. Christ is the main character of Esther chapter 1. And I hope to make that plain by the end of the day. So let's read with us. Hear the drama. Like, let, me just, let me just say just a word here. Like If you like those God-forsaken soap operas, turn them off and read Esther. Alright? Because there ain't nothing Hollywood's got on Esther. And it will defile your mind. Alright. Esther chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave uh, for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white, white curtain co- cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king has had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with a royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all those who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Marcina, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the commands of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mimucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are all in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. That this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the king's, queen's behavior will say the same to all of the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another, who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimucan proposed. 
He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own strip, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. So for us to understand the backdrop of what's happening in Esther, for us to understand everything that the Lord is teaching us in Esther, we need some history. We, we need to kind of be clued in on the, the context of what's happening. Why is this book important to the Jews? Why is what is happening important to the Jews? Why is all of this significant to them? You see, in 586 B.C., one of God's prophecies was fulfilled for the Jews. God had, in fact, made a covenant with the Jews, his people, that they would be his God and he would be their people and they would honor him with the law and that the Lord would set them apart and he would prosper them and he would protect them. And because of their being set apart from the world, because of their prospering from God, because of their protection by God, they would be seen as being set apart from all of the other nations and all of the other nations would, would call on and praise the name of their God. But... The Jews had lived unfaithfully to the covenant of God. The Jews had sinned and the Jews had, had become very pagan in many of their practices. And the Jews had, had idolatry running rampant throughout the kingdom. And so God, doing as he said would do through all of his prophets, God brings condemnation and judgment among the Jews and sends them into exile. And so in 586 B.C., the great Babylonian king... Nebuchadnezzar comes and he sacks Jerusalem. He burns the temple. And the people of God are scattered throughout his Babylonian empire. And in that moment, there is no temple at which to bring sacrifices. There is no practicing priesthood. There is no promised land in which you can enjoy its prosperity and enjoy it being a land that flows with milk and honey. No, there's only disparity. There's only slave labor. There's only the loss of cultural identity. And in fact, the modern Jews who do not practice the, uh, the, the offering of sacrifices and the many laws of the Old Testament that we find there, this was the beginning of all of that, when all of it went away. But also, as God had promised... That one day, he would again allow them to return home to their land. He would allow them to return back to Jerusalem. That the temple might be rebuilt. And in the book of Isaiah, before it ever happened, God even names the man that will do it. A pagan king. and A man by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus, the first and greatest of the Persian kings, allows all of God's people. And we read about this in the book of Ezra. He allows them to go back to Jerusalem even funds them to rebuild their temple. God using a wicked king. God using a pagan man. But for whatever reason, many of the Jews who had lived their entire lives as Babylonians, the, those that had lived enjoying the, the prosperity of Babylon, those that have been raised in Babylon, chose to stay in Babylon and not go back. Some went back. Some rebuilt the temple, some rebuilt the walls, but most, in fact, stayed in Babylon. Most, in fact, stayed in where they had been scattered in the midst of such an exile. And so that's what the book of Esther is answering. The book of Esther is answering for us, will God protect 
Will God keep his covenant? Will God deliver his people who have lived a life of unfaithfulness? Who are not practicing as he has instructed them to practice? Who are not living according to the law? Will God still maintain his covenants? Will God still maintain all the promises that he has kept? Even for those that remain in Babylon. Now the first character that we're introduced to in our story is introduced in verse 1. And it tells us it's in the days of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia. Ahasuerus is remembered better in history as King Xerxes. As Xerxes the Great. The great Persian king. The one that was, uh, who loved to display his wealth and uh, exhort his military power so that everybody might know how great he was. Now, fortunately, we have a great deal of knowledge about this man, Xerxes. And, and by the way, we'll probably use those names kind of interchangeably throughout the, the series because they're referring to the same man. Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name. Xerxes is his Greek name. And Xerxes is the way history remembers him. But we have a lot of information about Xerxes. And we have a lot of information about Xerxes primarily because of one man, one great historian, this man named Herodotus, who in fact is considered by many to be the father, uh, the father of modern history. See, up until his day, historians always had a very subjective view of history. They wrote, view, they wrote history, if you can just believe this, to make themselves look good. They wrote history to make sure their people always looked perfect, that their people always shined out. And so they wrote from a very biased perspective. And Herodotus aimed to change that. To the best of his ability, he would actually go and he would interview uh, eyewitnesses of, of both sides, of, of the Greeks, of the Persians, of, of whomever the conflict entailed. And he would try, to the best of his ability, to give an objective account of this. Now, as we read through the book of Esther, what's fascinating is if you read what Herodotus has written, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And this should not surprise us because the Bible is filled with rich history. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible is infallible. And so the picture that we have of, of King Ahasuerus painted for us in chapter 1 is the exact same picture of, er of Xerxes the Great that this great historian has written for us. He tells us that Xerxes comes to power at 32 years old. When we come to the book of Esther, he's in the third year of his reign, making him about 35 years old. He's in the prime of life. Herodotus tells us that Xerxes was an impressive man. That he was, he was attractive, and he was tall, and he was athletic, and he was strong, and he had a commanding presence in any room in which he entered. Now as we see in chapter 1, as we begin to examine this king, this man that history so remembers, the first thing that Herodotus would tell us about Xerxes, and the first thing that Xerxes would tell us about Xerxes, and the first thing that the narrator of Esther tells us about Xerxes is that this man is incomprehensibly rich. He is incomprehensibly wealthy. You see, what do we have in, in the beginning of chapter 1 is we have this this feast that's taking place, this, this party. And when we say party, we're talking about a party. You know what I'm saying? You know the difference? All right? We're not talking about kazoos and cone hats, okay? We're talking about a throwdown. We're talking about a shindig to end all shindigs. 
For six months, in fact, this party rocks on. This party carries on. Now, for Xerxes, this party had a very specific meaning, a very specific purpose. Darius, his father, had always wanted to defeat the Greeks. The Greeks were the only other superpower in the world. The Greeks were the only other people that, that the Persians had been unable to conquer. And Darius, the father of Xerxes, had went to do it only to be destroyed, only to be humiliated. And so Xerxes wants to go and right the wrongs of his father, to right what had been done to him. And he said that he would not sleep until Athens was burned. And so he goes, and, and the intent here is that he would bring in all, and you'll notice in our text that all of the, the nobles and all of the governors and all of the, the armies of Persia and Media, all of them are present. Why? He wants to impress them. He wants to convince them that he is strong enough and he is wealthy enough to win a battle against the mighty Greeks. That he is going to take down Spartacus. That he is going to take down this mighty Spartan army that had been almost immortal and in, in, invincible to so many other great militaries. And so he's bringing in what would have been about 15,000 people, most people believe. And he's bringing them into a six-month party so that they might see the splendor of his glory. Notice that's what it says, that, the, that this party is all for the purpose of them seeing the splendor of his glory. That they might see that this is a man with endless means. This is a man with plenty of money. This is a man in which no nation can rise up against and destroy. Now this is an incomprehensibly wealthy man. As you walk into the, the palace at Susa and the citadel, he tells us what the narrator tells us very clearly what you would see. You would walk in and almost instantly you would be blinded by all of the gold and the silver there. It says that the curtain rods are made out of silver. Now how many of y'all are doing alright like that? You got, I got so much silver in my house, I'm just going to melt it down and make curtain rods out of it. The couches... Now remember, he's got 15,000 people coming in. We're talking about seating capacity that would far exceed what we have in here. Couches. What are the couches made out of? Gold. Gold. You're chilling on a gold couch everywhere. There's gold couches. The, the drinking vessels. Gold. He says at the end that, that common men, he, he opened up the palace for an additional week so that common men could come. And they could experience just for a week what it would be like to live in the king's palace. And you can imagine what they might be thinking as they drink out of a vessel that is more, worth more than their entire lifetime's worth of wages added together. It says hanging from the silver rods is purple. Now you've got to understand purple for us is nothing big. Well, we've got purple everywhere. But in antiquity, purple was Gucci. And purple was Armani. Purple was what was up. Purple was the most difficult and most expensive of the dyes. It was next to impossible to get to, to acquire and very expensive to buy. And so if you wanted people to know that you were somebody, if you wanted people to know that you were anybody, if you wanted people to know that you were the king or that you were a nobleman or that you came from a family that is well-to-do, you didn't wear a logo on your clothes, you didn't have a particular tag in your clothes, you wore purple. And it says that when you walked in the palace, it's everywhere. It's just hanging 
It's just all over. As, as far as you can see, the only thing that takes away from the glare of the gold and the silver is all of the purple that is found throughout the palace. The pillars, they're made out of marble. We're not talking about stucco and columns and metal. We're talking about marble. In a day that they didn't have all the technology to go and mine it. In a day in which it wasn't easily accessible. No, all of this marble had been brought in by manpower and built these elaborate pillars. It says that as we go and we, we look throughout the palace... That the splendor there would be stunning to us. The, the splendor there would be hypnotizing for us. The floors, in fact, were made out as a, a beautiful mosaic of porphyry and marble and mother of pearl. How many of y'all would love to have something that was mother of pearl? They're trampling it under their feet. Now, this is a king that is incomprehensibly wealthy. He funds the, the party out of his own pocket. It's a six-month bender. And he says, hey, it's on me. I'll drink as much as you want. It's coming out of, the, out of the, the royal wine vineyard. Come, enjoy, indulge. Satisfy your every craving. Satisfy your every appetite. He hasn't even told us yet of his harem. With all of his concubines and all of his wives that would have proclaimed again his power and his glory. He, in fact, not only had this palace, he had three more just like it. Now, this is a wealthy king. Not only do we see that Xerxes is a wealthy king, we also see that he is, has unaccountable power, unaccountable authority. It says in verse 1 that he reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now, it's, it's kind of difficult for us to appreciate all of this right now. We now live in a global economy. In other words, because we have airplanes and because we have uh, internet and because we have phones, like China doesn't feel that far away. And, and Russia doesn't feel that far away. And California doesn't feel nearly as far away as we wish it would, right? Because we live in the midst of this global economy. But go to his day. The whole world was not even known yet. It had not even been charted yet. America and South America, they didn't even know they existed. The majority of the world's population lived where? They lived here. They lived in the Middle East. They lived in this section of Africa and Asia. And he reigns over all of it. He reigns over all of it. He reigns from, from Africa to Asia. He is reigning over all of it and, and planning to move into Europe. He is unquestionably the most powerful man in the world. He is unquestionably the wealthiest man in the world. He is unquestionably the one who everybody is, cares about what he thinks. And whatever he says, it goes. Whatever he wants to, you to do, you will do. When you walk into his presence, you will bow down to him. When he says something, you will do it regardless of your convictions, regardless of your thoughts. Because your thoughts don't matter. He reigns over all of it. As a matter of fact, he doesn't just have the authority of a king. Xerxes portrays himself as having the authority of God. As being the ruler of the earth. Xerxes, in his own words, over and over and over, refers to himself as the king of kings. Does that sound familiar? 
He is believed in his day to have spoken with the power of the sun. It says in here that it pictures him sitting on his throne, right? In verse 2, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne. It said that when uh, King Xerxes' ba- uh, militaries would go out to battle, they would carry his throne with them. And they would take his throne and they would set it up on a high point. And, they, and he would sit on the throne and he would look down on his armies and watch them defeat his enemies. Around his throne would have been about 15,000 world-class soldiers. They were the elites. They were SEAL Team 6. They were the, the Green Berets. They would sit around his throne and they were known as the immortals. Those that were, seemed like they couldn't die. Those that seemed like they couldn't lose. And these were the ones that would be gathered around the throne of Xerxes. Now does that strike a picture for any of you? Because that sounds a whole lot like Isaiah 6, doesn't it? Turn with me to Isaiah 6. Let's just read it together. Just a few books to your right. We'll just read the first four verses. Isaiah, having been given a vision. Isaiah, having been able to have the opportunity to peer through the floor of heaven, writes these words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. You see, Xerxes didn't want to be just a man. Xerxes didn't just want to be the great king. Xerxes, in fact, wanted to be God. Xerxes, I believe, was so narcissistic that he believed himself to be God. When he built the palace in Susa, archaeologists have have uncovered the foundation stone of the palace in the citadel and these words were written by Xerxes in his own words on the foundation stone. I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages, the king of this entire big and far-reaching earth, the son of King Darius, the Archimenean, a Persian, son of a Persian, an Aryan of Aryan descent. He believed himself to be the ruler of the earth. The king of the earth. And he is painted for us in Esther chapter 1 as being depravity and worldliness and sinfulness fully manifested. He is depravity personified. Remember, this is a Jew writing to a Jewish audience. We come to the Old Testament, we always have to ask the question, how would a Jew have interpreted this? How would they have made sense of this? So we have a Jew writing to a Jewish audience who's informed by the writings of the Old Testament, the scriptures of the Old Testament. And the Jews would have seen this man as being the picture of sin and the picture of worldliness and anti-God. A godless pagan. You see, Proverbs 31.4 says... That a king should not drink wine. That a ruler should not have strong drink. What do we see Xerxes? 
We see him on a six-month bender, drinking all that he could drink. In fact, they believed in his day, they believed in Persia, that to drink and to become intoxicated actually allowed you to think like a god. And so before they ever made a big decision, before they decided to go and uh, attack Greece, they would have this end-all, be-all party, get hammered drunk, and then decide. That's slightly different than the word of God regarding his kings, isn't it? It says of Xerxes in verse, uh, verse 8, And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Now that sounds strikingly similar to something that ha- was written in Numbers, doesn't it? I mean, Judges. Sorry. We come to Judges, and what does the narrator of Judges interject throughout? Each man did as he saw fit in his own eyes. And they are condemned for it. They are rebuked for it. He's not writing that in a positive. He's writing that in the negative. And yet what do we have here? We have a king inviting people to follow him there. We have a king inviting his people to go and to live as they see fit in their own eyes. And he's going to pay for it. And he's going to do it with them. No, this is a man that is worldly. This is a man that is depraved. But what else do you expect? What will you always get when you have incomprehensible wealth matched with unaccountable power? Those things will always lead us toward depravity. But this morning, before you point your self-righteous finger at Xerxes, before you look down your nose on this wicked pagan king, I would invite you to look at your own life. Who would you be? How would you live if you had incomprehensible wealth and you had unaccountable authority? You see, we live in a society that villainizes Tim Tebow and the Duggars and at the same time idolizes playboys like Hugh Hefner and John Mayer. We go head over heels in debt just so that we might understand just a fraction of how the Kardashians live or how our favorite athlete lives. We buy cars we shouldn't buy. We live in houses we can't afford. We wear clothes that mean nothing just so that we might know in a fraction, in 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 the smallest sense, how we might live if we had that kind of wealth and that kind of money. You see, we condemn Xerxes, but we pledge our allegiance way too often to the kingdom of Xerxes. To the thinking like Xerxes. Who would you be? Who would you be if you had limitless money? Who would you be if nobody could rebuke you? Who would you be if nobody could call you down? How different might you live and how different might you be? You see, I think if we were honest... We would look a lot more like Xerxes than we are willing to admit. It would probably scare us to consider how how much like him, how vain we could become. Because all of us seem to be chasing after happiness and it seems so elusive. And so we keep throwing money at it and throwing money at it and throwing money at it. Or we keep throwing ourselves at people and throwing ourselves at people and throwing ourselves at people. 
We keep buying and buying and buying and doing and doing and doing and going and going and going that we might experience just a smidgen of what this is. That we might satisfy our appetites and satisfy our indulgences. That we might do what seems fit and seems right in our own eyes. That we might just taste it for a moment. But let me remind you of what another king says. A king that lived a lot like Xerxes in his day. King Solomon. King Solomon comes into the book of Ecclesiastes having experienced, well, perhaps even far greater than that of Xerxes. Having power in his own day. Having had wealth that was stunning. Wealth that was hypnotizing. Having had the, the wives and all the things that Xerxes had. He comes to Ecclesiastes and what does he write? It's all vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. How many of us are chasing after happiness and chasing after happiness and chasing after happiness only to catch air? Time and time again. You see, we're way more devoted to the kingdom of Xerxes than we want to acknowledge we are. This is who we would all look like with our sinful nature fully manifested. This is what we would all be were it not from the grace of Christ that comes in and invades our lives and transforms us in the spirit. We would, be the, we would give it our best go to be this man. You see, as a Jew reads this, as they read Esther 1, as they were even living it in, in this day, as they were living it in the reign of Xerxes, how they must have longed for a greater king. See, what all of Esther 1 is doing is Esther 1 is mocking Xerxes. It's mocking him. You have to remember, this has been written after his death. This has been written after his reign. This has been written after the results are in. After the truth has come to bear. After all of that was going to happen has happened. They know what's going down. They know what's going to happen. And so, think about what you see here. Throughout the book of Esther, one of the things that we're going to see is irony. The, the author of Esther beautifully uses irony to teach us and to say to us what he wants us to say. And oh, do we see it in chapter 1. Oh, do we see the irony in chapter 1. You have this king ruling over the earth, the most powerful man in the world with all of the wealth, reigning over 127 provinces. The man, the self-proclaimed king of kings. And yet, he can't even have control of his own household. His own wife won't bow down to him. His own wife doesn't respect him. Vashti says, no thanks. He's shown to be a fool. Throughout the book of Esther, we'll see Xerxes to be easily impressionable. Easily manipulated to do what his advisors want, them, want him to do. And we even see that in chapter 1. What was the thing that he didn't want to have happen? He didn't want the kingdom to know that Vashti had, divide, had, uh, had opposed him. He didn't want the kingdom to know that Vashti had defied him. And so, what does he do? According to, to the wisdom of his advisor, he sends out an edict throughout all of the land that says what? Vashti has defied me. He embarrasses himself. He humiliates himself. He shows himself to be a fool. He shows himself to be an unworthy king. In fact, he shows himself 
despite his immortal army, despite all of his great fighting power, despite all of his self-proclaimed inability to lose, he shows himself to be powerless and impotent. You see, he would go on to fight Greece. The author of Esther knows this. He would go on to fight Greece four years later and he would be humiliated and it would cost him the majority of his fortune. And so as we read, it's foreshadowing to us. It's speaking to us and saying, it looks one way in the beginning, but it's going to end different. There's going to be a reverse ending. Things are not going to go the way that you expect. And so every Jew that's reading this, knowing what has happened, they're looking at this and they're reading and they're saying, what a fool. What a moron. How pompous and arrogant he is. I love the fact that he got destroyed. And so they're reading this and they're longing for a greater king. Because you see, Xerxes, he was the opposite of David in every way. David was the great king of Israel. David was the one that would sacrifice what he wanted so that God's will may be done. He would not kill Saul even though he wanted to kill Saul because it would not bring glory to the Lord. He was not a perfect man. He was not a sinless man. But he was a faithful king. He led the king in both prosperity and military power and in revival all simultaneously. How the Jews must read of Xerxes. How they must have lived under the reign of Xerxes and longed for David's return. Longed that the son of David that God had always promised would reign on his throne forever in prosperity and in power and in triumph. How they must have longed that he would come. Brothers and sisters, this morning we serve a greater king. This morning we serve a greater king. This is why the genealogy in Matthew matters. All right? This is why it's telling us who all has been married where and where Jesus came from. It all goes back to the son of David. Jesus is the son of David, sitting on the throne of David, reigning over the earth. And we will be under him forever, ruling with him in victory. We serve a king who is not merely impressive in appearance, but is truly mighty and truly wealthy and truly reigning over the world. Truly the king of kings. We serve a king that doesn't have to just show you his wealth, but allows you to experience it. A king that doesn't just keep it all for himself, but instead says in Ephesians 2 that you will get to enjoy the inheritance. That you will have his kindness and his wealth and his glory and his splendor reigned over you forever. We serve a king who did not display his glory in an opulent party. Rather, displayed his glory on a rugged cross. We serve a king in whose every other king comes into his presence. He doesn't have to demand that they bow down. It is the only natural response. And before him, Xerxes has bowed. And Nebuchadnezzar has bowed. And Caesar has bowed. And Hitler has bowed. And Stalin has bowed. And every king and every ruler, going back to the pharaohs and even beyond, they all go into the presence of this king and they are humiliated by his glory. Humiliated by his splendor. And they bow face down in his presence. We serve a greater king. He is ours. He has chosen us. He has adopted us. He has come after us. He has reconciled us. He loves us. And he is our king. Now in Esther chapter 1, do you notice who's missing? 
Do you notice who's not made an appearance? Where's God? Where's God in all of this? In fact, throughout the whole book of Esther, God is never even mentioned. There are not even religious acts done in Esther, if you perhaps exclude the fast of chapter 4. Nobody prays to God. Nobody calls on the name of God. Nobody mentions God. It seems as though God is absent. His people are, are struggling. His people are in, are in exile. And God isn't there. Where is he? You ever asked yourself that? You're in a storm. You're in exile. I have. Even in the last few weeks as we've had intense counseling and I've seen marriages. I think, God, where are you? I've counseled with people who received yet another diagnosis. And I'm thinking, God, where are you? Go to Salt Lake City. And we're in a city, and it is a city that is completely filled with cultic devotion. Devoted to, to something that is false, something that is deceptive, something that is anti-God and anti-Jesus and anti-the Bible. And I'm wondering, God, where are you? We had people curse at us. Hostility toward the gospel. People that, that hate the gospel and hate Christ. And I wonder, God, where are you in all of this? No doubt, we ask the same questions the Jews of Esther's day were asking. You see, this is the opposite of the book of Exodus, isn't it? In the book of Exodus, you have the Jews and they're in captivity in Israel. And God does the miraculous. He sends the plagues. He parts the Red Sea. He rains the bread. Oh, in Esther's day, how they must have wondered, where is my miracle? Where is my intervention? Where are you? How many times have you prayed that? God, where are you? Where is my miracle? Where is my parting of the Red Seas? I remind you, brothers and sisters, what Esther is teaching us, that even though it seems like God is a long way off, he is there. And he is working. And that certainly God intervenes. Uh, intervenes into history and he can defy the laws of nature and defy the laws of physics as he has built them himself but most often God is content to work in the background most often God is, quint is content to work in a silent voice God is architecting and weaving together with the threads of providence his will unfolding and, and unruling over the world John Piper says it like this that at any given point God's doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. And so this morning we wonder where God are you and God is here. God is in the midst of your circumstances and God is in the midst of your marriage and God is in the midst of your storm. God is here. And just because you can't feel him and just because you can't hear him and just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not at work. In fact, King Xerxes who thought he had all of this power, who thought he had all of this authority, he is merely a puppet in the hands of a mighty God. Vashti's removal has less to do with a courageous woman and more to do with the providence of God as God is putting into place whom he needs to deliver his people and to accomplish his will. This morning as we close, I ask you, which kingdom has your heart? The kingdom of Xerxes? The kingdom of self-indulgence? The kingdom of your own appetites? Or the kingdom of God? Who, what king has your allegiance? Is it Xerxes that says to you, do whatever you want? Xerxes that says to you, satisfy your wildest cravings? Or is it God that says, be holy as I am holy? 
Who has your heart? Let's pray for this.